Hey everyone, I'm Andrew, and you're listening to Small Efforts, a collaboration between Crit and Miss Grants. And hi, I'm Sean. Small Efforts is a show where we talk about cybersecurity, design, and the continuous small efforts it takes to build a business. Folks who are listening, I went to go get diagnosed, and it appears I have some mild form of ADHD. I've always wondered whether or not I had it. Mm-hmm. Mental health is generally not really talked about within a Chinese household is, you know, a lot of, a lot of any sort of like non-conformity is usually conditioned out of you at a pretty early age. The thing is, it's, it's always helpful just to know and to understand yourself better. I found sure. when I was diagnosed, it really kind of opened my eyes and helped me sort of frame a large part of my life in a different way. Personally, I felt like mm-hmm. I was lazy, like I couldn't accomplish anything, like I couldn't focus, I could get shit done in the way that other people could. And I just sort of internalized that as I'm lazy, I'm bad, I'm a piece of shit. And getting diagnosed with ADHD was a was really helpful because it reframed it for me once I finally mm-hmm. took that step and then got the diagnosis and started learning about it and researching it. It was really helpful for me in reframing mm-hmm. my habits and my behavior and thinking about how I could approach the world. Nice. I think it's always good to to take that step and just get diagnosed and I think same as you in terms of the self-talk and, and also negative external comments on, on laziness or inability to cert- complete certain tasks, especially getting to like a 90% marker or whatnot. I'm curious how it's positively reframed it for you, right? And I think that growing up, I was definitely worried that it would negatively reframe. Hmm. I have this thing now, which causes me to not do things as perfectly as I like could be doing them. I think it stems from more negative self-talk. I don't think I feel that way about anyone else who has it. It's just a a new thing that's on my mind recently. The negative self-talk for me was you're lazy, you're bad. And then Mm -hmm. it was like, whether you want to call it disorder or a disability or just like Mm -hmm. a part of my personality, the way my brain works, it's like, no, this is just how I function and I function differently from other people. Mm. I haven't done as much reading lately, but I know that there have been some connections between ADHD and creativity and parts of my brain that suffer from ADHD are bad at at certain things. They also make it easier for me to do other things. And I know there's some danger in that line of thinking. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, oh, you're broken or something. It was like, oh, no, this is just a difference in how my brain functions to how other people's brains function. It's not that I'm a bad person. It's not that I'm you know, incapable. Mm-hmm. It's just that I work differently. I can start to think about how to cope with that and how to work around that. And mm-hmm. I can start to look at things from a, how would someone with ADHD handle this situation? There's actually mm-hmm. a book that I would recommend reading if, and it's kind of a strange recommendation. Mm-hmm. It's called Organizing Solutions for People with ADHD. Interesting. And it's more about like sort of day-to-day like household organization than anything else. The author was a professional organizer Mm. who would help people organize closets and spaces and offices and things. And her daughter had ADHD. You know, she didn't understand why her daughter couldn't do simple things. And so once they got the diagnosis, she threw herself in and started learning about how people with ADHD function and how their brains work. Mm -hmm. And she developed these organization systems that are different from the systems that would work well for other people. And I have implemented some of these. I think 
I learned a lot about ADHD and about how it works from reading this book. She talked about when you have ADHD, you become distracted much more easily. How do I build systems to minimize the chances of being distracted? You know, again, talking about home organization, if I need to go into another room to get cleaning supplies, chances are that I'm going to get sidetracked on the way to get them. (laughs) And it's not that that that's wrong. You're going to pick up some sort of stimulus and get drawn to that and start going in that direction and just totally forget what your original intent was. And so the best system is not to keep everything in one place. It's to have duplicates of things so that Mm. it is within easy reach so that there is less time, less distance for you to cover in which you could get distracted. Similarly, she talked about rather than trying to put your clothes away in a dresser, using a bookshelf to store clothes so that there's just one less step towards getting distracted. You don't have to shut the drawer. You don't have to pull the drawer open. It's just, you just put it away. It sounds silly. It sounds like a small thing, but just it's not every second is a chance to get distracted. And so reducing the barriers, reducing the friction of accomplishing the tasks that are important to you Mm -hmm. so that you reduce the chances to get distracted and get pulled in a different direction ends up being a better system for people like us. I found it really, really helpful to read through this even beyond just thinking about how to organize my bedroom. Okay, that's very interesting. That makes me see this in a slightly different light. I think I delayed any sort of like diagnosis and whatnot because I didn't want that to be the reason for why I felt that was lazy or disorganized or anything like that. I'm gonna go read the book. It's a good book, Rick. I'm hoping it's effective because I think it solves some problems in my life. So one of the things that I love, and it's kind of similar to this book, mm-hmm. Atomic Habits, James Clear's book that everyone mm-hmm. talks about, is reading that dispelled the notion for me that like anyone has magical ironclad discipline. Certainly some people probably are more predisposed to doing repetitive mm-hmm. tasks, to doing things that they that seem unpleasant or that they don't want to do. But the core idea behind atomic habits is how do you make it easy? How do you make it desirable? Mm -hmm. Most of the time it happens Mm -hmm. by creating systems that make something easier, make something more desirable, make it more interesting, creating social pressure, creating accountability, systems of accountability. Like you build habits by making it easier to build the habit, not by bashing yourself and, you know, gritting your teeth and getting through the pain. I think, this book is kind of saying some of the same things. It's not that you lack discipline, it's that your brain works in a different way. So how can we build systems that work for your brain and make it easier for you? There are trade-offs. We'll spend more money by having a second set of cleaning Mm -hmm. supplies or whatever it is, so that there's something, so that it works better for you. And that was was really helpful. It kind of gave me permission to lean into doing things that were different. Anything else that you've been feeling or experiencing since getting diagnosed? I think as much as I was previously worried about the diagnosis, I think it confirms like a a sort of belief I've had. I've been trying to read up more and more on ADHD and and certain, I guess I never thought about solutions in in that way. I think it's been more like reading up on symptoms and also just to have something to understand myself better through. It's another step towards like self-awareness, right? I wanted to talk about one of the really common symptoms of ADHD that it sounds like you experience hyperfocus. People so mm-hmm. often associate ADHD with distraction and getting easily distracted. But mm-hmm. counterintuitively, one of the s- 
super common symptoms is hyper-focus. So this is, mm-hmm. you know, when you throw yourself into something, whether it's a book, whether it's video games, whether it's TV, whether it's a creative pursuit, you become so engrossed in it that you tune out the outside world. I remember reading books as a kid and like my mom, you know, would be calling my name and I just, it wasn't that I was being rude. I straight up didn't hear her. I didn't know that she mm-hmm. was calling my name because I was so mm-hmm. hyper-focused on what I was doing was part of the story that kept me from getting diagnosed because I Mm. didn't know that that was a symptom. And so my mom and I, my parents and I would talk and we'd be like, man, it seems like you have ADHD, but you get so engrossed when you're reading books. Like you clearly can focus there. Why can't you focus on these other things? Yeah. And no, actually that is a really common symptom. And so I think it's just important to say that so that, you know, other people who are thinking about getting diagnosed, wondering this about themselves, kind of know that mm-hmm. you can both experience hyperfocus and distraction mm-hmm. and actually experiencing those two things together to those extremes make it more likely mm-hmm. that you might have ADHD, not not less. Cool. I didn't know that. Well, I didn't know that about you. In terms of hyperfocus, definitely very much experience that. I think actually the same on the book thing. I think the interesting thing now is to look back at life retrospectively and like a retrospective look at various things that I either struggled with or excelled at as a kid and wondering how much of that is attributed to just like the way my brain functions. And I think the new frame I'm looking at this from through this conversation is like altering the these solution or the system in which I try to solve things, right? It's not uncommon for people to who have ADHD to also struggle with OCD or with anxiety mm-hmm. and some other you know, sort of common mental health disorders. There can be overlap and there can be things that you feel like don't fit perfectly into the picture of ADHD. Sometimes you might be struggling with it to a clinical degree and sometimes you might just be struggling with mm-hmm. aspects at, at a level that is not uncommon, not unusual that everyone experiences. But I have a question for you, Sean. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your journey starting Miscreants and sure. how you think about compensating yourself as the founder and owner. You're going to get mad at me for this question, for this answer, by the there way. Yeah, yeah. Andrew's <laughs> nodding. <laughs> I paid myself last year at the end because I ran out of money to pay for rent. I think it was $12,000. I don't think I've moved any money out this year but i just buy myself a a macbook for work so there's there's that that was like four thousand dollars so a total of sixteen thousand dollars and you know i'm sure i spend money on like travel that's out of the bank account let's say like a total amount of owner comp in like 20k so far okay Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i i absolutely think you should try to pay yourself more as soon as possible (laughs) but i also understand like Mm -hmm. when we started our business we did not make very much money at all for a long time. And I can share those numbers. Yeah, how much do you make, Andrew? So, well, I, I know how much you make. It's it's online. <laughs> but. So for the first year and a half to two years that we started Crit, mm-hmm. I believe we paid ourselves $500 a month. So nice. when we started Crit, we started as part of an accelerator company. Mm-hmm. We were still in college. I was a junior. Austin was a senior. Our other partner was also a, a junior at the time. And we were trying to build our own products. We got $16,000 as part of that accelerator program. Mm -hmm. And then we took on some consulting gigs in those first couple of years to like bring in a little bit of extra money, you know, a few thousand dollars here and there. Mm -hmm. And so one of our partners actually already had a mortgage. And I, you know, 
through scholarships and things, you know, didn't have a whole lot of expenses, but still needed money to live off of to buy groceries. Still in school and then was, you know, living at home for that first year. And so was able to save a good bit of money, but still had to, you know, sort of pay for basic living expenses. And so we were able to scrape by on, you know, $500 a month, which is like $6,000 a year for the first year to two years. And then from then we started trying to pay ourselves more. So I think the next year we paid ourselves like 30 or 36,000 a year. And I don't remember exactly how long that was for, but we went basically 36,000, 48,000, 60. I think I stayed at 48 for a little while. We bumped everyone else up to 60 because my expenses Mm. were a little lower or something like that. And then just like, like 2019, 2018, I think we bumped ourselves up to 72. Nice. And that felt like a huge jump. Like that felt like, okay, I can breathe again. I can breathe Hmm. again. Um, Then we went from 72. I think we started doing slightly bigger jumps. I think we went from like 72 to, I can't remember if we did 72, 84 or 72, 96. And then we did 108. And then now we're at last year, we bumped ourselves up to 120. And for most of the company, other than the first couple of years, we have paid ourselves as uh, W-2 employees, mainly because we had all experienced being independent contractors and we all hated doing complicated taxes. So we Mm -hmm. (laughs) early on just wanted taxes to be easy, even if it was less tax advantageous. And so we said, fuck it, just make this easy on us. So we paid ourselves as W-2 employees. And for most of Crit, that has been the vast majority of our our income was our salaries. A few years ago, we started trying to do profit sharing. And for a while, we did that annually, but it was a really pretty small amount of the profits that we shared instead of investing back into the business. And so we would get a percentage and we've tweaked that profit sharing formula over time. And so, you know, this year, if we hit our goals, you know, Austin and I might each get about $10,000 a quarter or so in profit sharing, which we're currently paying out just as bonuses, not as not as owner draw, mm. not as distributions, because mm. we still have a couple of people on the books who aren't active in the company. And so that just complicates mm-hmm. things a little bit. But yeah, we do do some profit sharing as bonuses right now and hope to eventually move that, shift that over to distributions. Nice. So yeah, in theory this year, if everything goes well, Austin and I could stand to make about 120 in base salary and you know, 30 or 40 yeah. in, in additional compensation. Dope. Sick. Congrats. But yeah, this has been on my mind because there have been two surveys mm. that have come out recently. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, you sent me first one from Bureau of Digital called the Digital Services Salary Guide. And then I just happened to stumble upon Pilot's Founder Salary. And I think I actually stumbled on this right after you told me, hey, Sean, you should pay yourself, which I still kind of have a hard time doing at the <laughs> moment, just to kind of like set the stage a little bit. I got very lucky when I started Miscreants. I had a full-time job for a while and, and relatively low expenses. You know, single person, wasn't really spending a lot of money anywhere, saved, honest, and like student loans just weren't a thing anymore because COVID happened and it all got pushed out. So I had very little expenses. So I just saved a lot of my money. It was a little bit more than just enough to basically make rent in New York City every single month. And I had two roommates, so... You know, I wasn't paying a lot for a really small apartment, but, you know, it was very, very much a fun time there. But I got very lucky in the fact that 
that money was sitting in the bank account. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go put this in stocks and crypto. I don't want to call it value investing, but the shitty amount of speculation. And it was right as the bull market had started because it was COVID and everyone all of a sudden had free money from the government. And I got very, very lucky because I basically from buying Levi's and the real real and a bunch of other sort of e-commerce as companies and whatnot. Oh, and like Hertz or whatnot. I think I ended up getting an extra 13 grand out of it when I sold everything. So I was very fortunate to have some sort of like nest egg that just sat there and, and was able to pay for my living expenses. So it let me not take a salary from Miss Greens for a very long time. The money did run out eventually at like November, December. And I was like, okay, I, I need to make rent. In which case I, I took the owner draw. I tried to take as little as I needed. But yeah, so I, I do want to preface that. I get equally lucky in a different way, which was this small accelerator program was willing to give three college kids who had no fucking clue what they were doing, $16,000. <laughs> My parents had saved a tiny bit for college. And then mm. I had got pretty good scholarships because I went in state. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have student loans. My tuition was covered and I had a little bit of extra from the scholarships. I also was able to live at home with my parents for a little while and everything. So mm -hmm. yeah, similarly, I was in a lucky position and was able to scrape by. I think one of the biggest arguments for universal income that people yeah. don't acknowledge, which is just more entrepreneurs would exist if people you know, didn't have to worry about sure. feeding their family. Anyway, it's really interesting to talk about how owners of businesses compensate themselves. And yep. I think it's interesting to think about how we should compensate ourselves. Let's look at the numbers real quick. Sure. So looking at the salaries, annual salaries across all respondents for founders. And this, there were 176 respondents. And I think these were like more traditional software companies, right? Yep. Yep. This, we're talking about pilot study here. Specifically, these are, I believe these are like startups. Yeah. So, so, um, about 15% of people make less than 50K a year in annual salary. It looks like 33% make in the 100 to 150 range, 14% make 150 to 199. And then it's like tiny, like, you know, 3% make over 250. So mm -hmm. obviously great salaries, but certainly not yeah. CEO at big mega corporation salaries yeah, yeah. that we're talking about here. And then... Yeah. Did you want to want to comment sort of on that before I jump over to the bureau data? Yeah, I was going to say just because these are like startup founder salaries on page nine, it's really a breakdown of CEO salaries or owner salaries by funding. Mm. So if their funding is 100K or 3 million or 5 million and what that average salary looks like. Yeah, um, this is super interesting. And, you know, it does scale. It does scale significantly. If And, and, and I think it, that it makes sense. I, I do think that it was interesting to see that uh, the lowest salary reported for a startup with 50 million in funding was 90,000. Whoever's doing that, I think fucking wild. They're, they're a saint because <laughs> I think if I had a funding round of 50 million, I, I guess hopefully no VCs listen to this. But if you give me 50 million dollars, I'm going to go ahead and pay myself a salary. Honestly, the good VCs want you to pay yourself a salary because the good VCs know that if you're financially taken care of, you're going to yep. feel more comfortable like taking making the right decisions for the company and you're going to have more mental health space to think about the company. Uh, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, this is really interesting to look at. Mm -hmm. Fascinatingly, the average salary, and I think this is, speaks a little bit to it's a relatively small sample size, but 
zero to 100k in funding average salary is 98k 100 to k to a million in funding average salary drops to 82k 1 million to 3 million average salary is only 92k 3 million plus it starts to get up also interestingly up until 3 million the lowest salary was zero at 3 million the lowest salary was 50k makes sense yeah makes sense yeah, I think it's it gets pretty hard in my eyes sometimes to justify salary. I think at some point you should pay yourself. I think currently for me, it's been hard to justify salary because one, I own the place. I can always take money out if I want to. And then we're trying to give some significant raises by Q3 for those folks that have kind of joined us really early on and kind of, yeah, are deserving of a raise. So I don't know. It gets it gets hard to justify because I always feel like I'm just taking money out of the company that could be used in better ways. And I think the reality is almost every founder when they're starting a company, unless it's like their third round and they've got funding right off the bat, like you're going to take a pay cut. You're going to reduce your pay yep. for the first X number of years while you start your business. And that is you're essentially sacrificing that and betting that you can create something that is more valuable than that that income that you've lost. And maybe that value isn't just monetary value, maybe that's lifestyle, maybe that's company culture, you know, impact of the corporation. There's other ways besides money to value things. But at some point, it is important, I think, that you do get rewarded for that, right? Like, otherwise, it it's easy to slip into a world where you start to feel jaded, you start to feel resentful, and that's not good for you or your company. And so I think that's the the line that you always have to walk as a founder is you do want to put money into the business because you believe in yourself and you believe in your ability to grow it. But you also need to take care of yourself and you need to diversify, right? You shouldn't have all your eggs in one basket. And for as long as all of your money is tied up in your company, you have all your eggs in one very, very high risk basket. So let me ask you this then, because it's been on my mind for a little bit in terms of Roth IRAs and all that stuff. Like, how do you think about like saving slash investing as a founder? Because it's, you know, I would imagine it's very different than a where you have RSUs in a tech company, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, we have some worth as founders, but that is much less liquid than any company where any early stage privately held company is not very liquid. Becomes more and more liquid the closer you get to being public or if you're one of the lucky few who gets gets acquired. Agencies in particular are valued like shit and so are worth on papers not in theory worth as much as we could generate by holding on to the business and growing it and generating cash flow. Yep. When I think about investing the money that I do take out of the business and investing my salary and, and things like that, I am very, very risk averse when it comes to my personal investing, which might seem seem odd. And I know that's there, so interesting. I know there are founders who, you know, they started a business because they're they have a high tolerance for risk. They believe in themselves. They're super optimists. And so they always think things are going to go up and they trust their judgment to be better than that of the market, that ain't me. Like I, I subscribe to the school of thought that trying to time the market, trying to play the market is a fool's errand and you're just going to end up burning yourself. And I also look at it and say, I've got a lot of risk tied up in my salary. Mm -hmm. This thing where most of my net worth is, it's a very risky thing that could go away at any 
at any moment. Mm. The money that I do take out and the money that I do invest and save for myself, I am going to be very careful with. So I hold a lot more cash than most people do. I do very, very little individual stock picking. I have a little bit of a play account that has a little bit of money in it. For a long time, we didn't have 401k set up. And you know, within the last couple of years, we finally caught up there, made sure it was a company, gotten that process set up. So I maxed out my 401k, I maxed out my Roth IRA, and then I saved most of the rest right now in cash. And the thinking for me on that is sort of twofold. I put a tiny bit in a small investment account that is holds diversified ETFs, but most of my saving outside of 401k Roth IRA is cash. And the thinking there is one, I'd like to buy a house in a few years. And so I don't want to risk that money. I don't want to deal with the ups and downs of the market. Worst case scenario, if I have to delay buying a house, but have a little extra safety net, that's better for me. I am very, very risk averse when it comes to investing my, my personal money. That is the exact opposite, especially if I know that I can do the individual contributor work on a project. Like sometimes like miscreants will do work for a cash and equity deal with so that we can kind of get more into that sort of angel S space. I think my mind goes to like doing a Roth IRA or doing any sort of like investment vehicle. This is really cocky, but I have a hard time believing that the money that I take and invest back into miscreants slash any project that I work on won't just have greater returns than any other investment vehicle, even if that's like a real estate fund or anything like that. But that's because I'm incredibly cocky and delusional. So There's some truth to that, right? Like mm -hmm. a business is a much higher reward, higher right. potential outcome than investing in stocks is likely to be. But stocks are steady. They're constant. Mm -hmm. Well, ETFs are steady, <laughs> individual stock picking, mm -hmm. not at all steady. I, yeah, I, I'll branch out day trading another day. You have a very high potential outcome. You also have the ability to invest sweat equity. So time and energy and like, you know, yeah, we're all betting on ourselves to a certain degree, but at a certain point, like I want to hedge my bets, right? Like I want to mm -hmm. diversify those bets. Like, yeah, I still betting on myself by continuing to run this business and grow this business. And, you know, we could be taking out a lot more than we are. Like we still reinvest a, a good chunk of what profits we do have into the business. Also want to be hedging those bets a little bit because I'm mm -hmm. not infallible. Like this thing could fall apart. Yeah, I don't think it will. There are all sorts of things that are outside of my control. And so I want to hedge my bets. And, and when I'm hedging those bets, I want to be very safe and very steady low risk with those hedges. And so my safety net, my personal investing is very, very low risk. You would probably put it into things that were higher potential reward. We're in very different places in our lives, right? That's for sure. Yeah, I think that some of the expenses that you have in your life, I get to fortunately not have just yet. I'm trying to use as much of my youth to take on as much risk and to really just like throw as much sweat equity at things as I can for the payoff, because I think that even if it, it all goes to shit in the next five years, I still have time. Not to say you, you can't do that either. I'm I was just going to say the phase of life that I'm in for sure plays a part in this. Like mm -hmm. at one point wrote a blog post. I mm -hmm. emptied my savings account I had at the time yep. to buy a newsletter, which was a very high risk investment. It was trying to start a second business. Mm -hmm. Wait, you bought a newsletter? I, yeah, I bought a newsletter. Interesting. <laughs> and so I 
sunk a good chunk of my money into restoring my grandfather's sailboat. And that was more of a life experience than anything I ever expected to see a return on. Part of this is I have entered a phase of life where I'm looking more towards the future and looking more Mm -hmm. to, you know, maintain what I have now, as opposed to risking losing everything. And while I feel confident that I could recover from it, I would prefer not to go through that. And so I have decreased the risks that I'm willing to take. One other point that I wanted to make just on how to think about how to pay yourself that I think has helped me to reframe it. Because yeah, you could always look at it as I keep reinvesting in the company and any money that I take out of the company is money that I could potentially be doubling or tripling by growing the company. But a big change in my mindset in the last couple of years has been thinking about how do we build crit so that it is a company that would be attractive to sell. Whether we ever want to sell it or not is a whole different story. But I believe that like creating a business that is attractive to sell often makes for a fundamentally healthier business from a financial standpoint, at least. Mm -hmm. And a business that is attractive to sell has a strong team in place, but can run without any one of those people, has strong processes, has healthy profit margins, has competitive salaries and competitive compensation and everything. You know, if someone were to ever buy crit, they still couldn't replace me or Austin for what we were paying ourselves. Maybe we're getting into the the territory where maybe they could if they got lucky, but it would be tough, right? Right, right. And so like thinking about how do I actually build miscreants or build crit into a company that financially looks good to sell means, you know, paying yourself a healthy amount because you've got to Otherwise, you're sort of cheating the numbers, right? You're fudging the numbers. You're saying like, yeah, miscreants is super profitable. If you magically find someone who's willing to take zero salary and put 60 hours a week of their life into this thing, that's not realistic. And so if you want to get realistic, then it's important to start taking that money out sooner so that you Mm -hmm. can see that the company can take that stress and still be profitable and still grow and still be healthy. I completely agree with you. When we look at burn and whatnot, we also adjust for what I would be paying myself. I just then don't take the money out and then put it back again. Regardless, I do agree with you. We are still fudging the numbers, right? I think I was thinking about this also like in terms of like stage crit is, you know, miscreants is definitely newer and, and, you know, like scrappy trying to hit escape velocity. It's the stupid risks that pay off. It's the sponsoring a Hack Fortress team <laughs> and getting a and letting a deal with a large gaming streaming company out of it. Last week, a friend of ours, Mike Murray, passed away. Mike was the founder of Scope Security, a really great company that was trying to solve security for the healthcare industry. Mike was a super mission-driven person who really cared not just about building a profitable company, but about making a difference in the healthcare space and keeping people safer. I've known Mike for you know a year and a half or so, so certainly not as well as some of his close family and friends. And my heart goes out to all of those people. But even in the six months or so that we worked together, he made a real impression on me. Just the kind of leader you want to be, a really patient, kind, empathetic person who cared deeply about anyone he worked with, whether they were agency like us or members of his own team, the kind of role model that I looked up to and really aspired to be more like Mike is still in our Slack and, you know, I would, would check in every now and then. And so was really heartbroken to see that news and Mike, you will be yeah. sorely missed. The impact that you made is clear from how many people have 
you know, spoken up and, and shared stories about how much they miss you and how much they care about you. And yeah, just heart goes out to all of his family and friends and thankful that we got to work with him. Yeah. I believe Scope was also Crit's first security client. Not our first and, uh, security client. Not our first, but, okay, got it. But got yeah, it. definitely gotcha. one of the earlier security clients. And and yeah, Mike totally sponsored us and opened doors for us and made a point to do yeah. that. And that was really cool and really impactful and meaningful for me. And so, yeah, just, and really sad to see him go. The community lost a really good one, but yeah, his impact will definitely live on. Yeah, it's always super hard to see. But yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. All right, we'll wrap there. Cool. Cool. <laughs> I'll see you later. Hey. You just listened to Small Efforts, a podcast collaboration between Crit and Miscreants, hosted by Sean Sun and Andrew Askins. Sean is a hacker turned designer and the founder of Miscreants, a creative agency building memorable brand and product experiences for cybersecurity ventures. Andrew is an engineer turned CEO and the founder of Crit, a product design agency that helps cybersecurity founders create better products. If you enjoyed this podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. You can check us out at smalleffortspod.com. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.